Hello everyone and welcome to the 131st Charity Chat episode. I am your host, Osman Mughal, and today I will be speaking with Garshif Shabid, CEO at Muslim Aid. In today's conversation, I talk to Garshif on a range of different topics. We cover how Garshif entered the sector, the work of Muslim Aid, both domestically and internationally, including Garshif's vision for the organisation in the years ahead, what have been the key learnings from the COVID-19 crisis and what this means for the future for both his organisation and the wider sector. We also touch on what organisations need to do to improve equity, diversity and inclusion and the consequences of this if it is not taken seriously and what are the key attributes that are important in leading an international organisation. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Charity People. And without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Firstly, congratulations, Garshif, on being appointed as permanent CEO at Muslim Aid in February of this year. And we wish you all the best in the role. Thank you very so- much, Osman. So previously to working in the third sector, Garshif, you held numerous roles within the corporate world. And I wanted to get a sense from you, what attracted you to working in this sector? And how was your experience in the corporate world helped you in working in the third sector? Thank you very much, Osman. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it was a journey. I mean, like you said, my, my initial experience was all in the corporate sector up to about uh, what 15 years ago um, and mostly in the states on top of that and uh, what that well I guess like most of us you know I was volunteering uh, outside of those times and uh, as I picked up the skills in in a large multinational I was working in one of the largest multinationals at the time and for, for those people that remember Nokia the phone company um, and uh, so it gave me a great opportunity to travel um, at a young age, I was living out in, 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 in the US for a good part of 14 years. Uh, my kids were born out there. So I get the traveling and, and, and meeting different people, learning about different parts of the organization, human resources, IT, marketing, product development, program management. Um, I think that gave me a really good basis in what it takes to, to run a large organization. And, 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 I, and I love learning. So, so all of those skill sets kind of built up uh, over the time that I was there and I was there for a long time you know couple that in with the travel uh, seeing different countries uh, traveled a lot while I was out there um, to the to Asia a lot of the time to Asia to Canada obviously to the US Europe uh, where we were headquarters um, and as I and I, as I learned those skills and at the same time when I was volunteering or, and became more serious about volunteering I guess I think what I saw was a lot of those skills I was picking up in the corporate sector were missing, or I saw as missing in, in the in the charity sector. And, and I just started volunteering with organizations so I could start sharing some of that, that learning that I was doing 
in the corporate sector really like you know how do you put together a plan how do you, you know how do you project manage something uh, what does strategy mean and and uh, looking at finances and business models a little bit differently that's how it started really i just started to share that knowledge out and people found it useful um i started doing it on my weekends maybe you know sitting with uh, charity boards they found that advice very useful and then when the time came with Nokia, and I guess as most of the business world knows, at one point Nokia weren't doing so well, and um, I took the opportunity to leave and um, set up a consultancy, really as a way to share the knowledge I'd picked up over the previous ten years. Nokia was the only company I worked for. You know, it was a great place to do learn. They had great learning programs. Um, I was on a leadership program there, and 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 it just gave me an opportunity to share that out with the rest of the sector and I just uh, I guess it was a bit of a leap of faith at the time you know it was a massive pay cut <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, compared to the commercial sector but um, you know the family were on board they realized it was something that I wanted to try and really that was the initial goal uh, Osman was really to try to share some of that skill set that I'd picked up uh, with the charities that I was uh, in, uh, volunteering with at the time and um and that's what happened and, and tried to turn that into a full-time role. And I was lucky enough uh, that some of those charities trusted me enough to give me that, that initial opportunity and come on board full-time. Um, and it just went on from there, really. Brilliant. That's great to hear your background and all the things that you've been able to achieve in your career. Do you feel now leading one of the largest Muslim charities in the country, do you feel that organisations within the third sector should encourage more people from the corporate sector into the third sector. Um, I think I think there's there's a few things that uh, to unpack there. Um, it's not so much that we need people from the corporate sector, but there is definitely, from my experience, uh, working with large charities, you know, six hundred million pound charities, when it came to places like Oxfam, to to smaller Muslim charities, so faith, non faith, non faith, we largely obviously attract. Uh, uh, people that want to come and, and, and work in the sector and they and it's largely seen as people that are sacrificing something whether they're sacrificing their time sacrificing money um, uh, and, and so certain people can afford to do that like at the time I was given voluntary redundancy I had to use that money to cushion myself into the charity sector right they, they weren't able to to match what I was what, uh, uh, what I was getting when I when I left uh, the commercial sector at the time. Me personally, I believe it's just about trying to attract competent people to do the right jobs in in the organisation, whether they come from the commercial sector or not. Um, we don't seem to be doing a good enough job to attract competent people, um, and it's not personally. I don't think it's all to do with finance. Maybe I know you've got a question regarding diversity and inclusion uh, uh, and, and how we uh, tackle that. But it's not all about money, you know. You, you have to make your places uh, professional places that attract people that are competent in those roles to work rather than a lot of the time just going out there and trying to find people that you can afford. Um, and I think that that whole um, paradigm kind of like needs to shift a little bit more uh, you know the charity sector historically has been quite scared of saying we need more commercial people in and when you use commercial te terminologies we tend to we tend to shy away from them uh, in the sector but uh, it, it's not so much that you need commercial people in there I think it's more about 
um, the right competencies uh, um, and, and attracting those competencies and what would it take for the sector to attract those right competencies. I'll give you a simple example. I mean, you know, we, 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 uh, when you're in a large, especially when you're in a larger charity, you know, the departments and, and, and functions are, are very much almost identical to a large organization, right? You have the marketing department, you know, you have the uh, uh, income generation, otherwise known as a sales department, right? You have the uh, uh, product development, you have services, you have HR, you have IT, you know, all of these things exist in the commercial world. But for some reason, when it comes to charity work, we don't seem to attract the best talent in those areas. Um, and I think we just need to do a better way of better way of attracting that talent. And um, yeah, I, I think I'd leave it at that. It's not so much commercial. I think we just need to create an environment and an ecosystem that does bring the best talent into the sector. I couldn't agree with that more, Kashif. And before we um, tease out some of those themes a bit later in the podcast, I just wanted you to outline for those that may not be aware of the work that Muslim Aid does both domestically and internationally. And as a new CEO of the organisation, what's your vision for Muslim Aid? And how do you see that working side by side with other organisations, perhaps, and being interim CEO for one year and now having a permanent position, what areas do you think that need particular focus or areas to develop? So Muslim Aid, first of all, is uh, one of the largest obviously Muslim charities in the in the UK. Um, we're the second oldest Muslim charity in the UK. Uh, it was formed in 1985 during the, the, the well, what became quite famous, the, the, the African famine at the time. Um, uh, in Ethiopia um, we are uh, after that I mean last year we served about two million people directly around the world uh, indirectly millions more um, we largely focus our work on uh, vulnerable communities in vulnerable places so hard to reach areas so you know for example you know we've been in Bosnia since the Bosnia war started we've been in Myanmar since the Myanmar and the Rohingya situation has been there longer than the Rohingya situation has been there uh, Palestine we've been there you know Yemen you know been there since before the war and we've stayed there so you know we've we've had a habit over the years you know to intervene in emergency situations um and then stay uh, and 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 these are some of the most fragile states you know on the on the on the planet so you know we're quite proud of that 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 we're a, a charity that that largely focuses uh, on programs in those countries um you know we've got permanent offices in obviously in Pakistan in Bangladesh Myanmar Sudan Somalia and then we have partner offices in 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 Indonesia Bosnia Sri Lanka whenever we have entered there you know we've we've tried to stay and and do the long term development but emergency relief is 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 a big part of our work as well. Uh, wash, sanitation, uh, uh, obviously a big part of uh, the winter was the COVID uh, response in some of those countries. Uh, education, uh, poverty relief, orphan sponsorship. So that's who we are. As regards uh, Usman about vision for the future, so um, it's a very good question. Um, I joined Muslim Aid because. I had done a lot of work with both the Muslim and non-Muslim sector uh, for a while. And 
um, I have a very strong uh, vision about where the that that, that faith-based sector should be. Um, I believe that we have a lot more to add and contribute to the sector um, as a, a faith-driven organization. I believe we have solutions that are uh, that come from our faith that that we can contribute to not only to Muslim sector but but to the wider sector that we can explore. And I don't I don't believe we've done that enough. You know, we're we're normally uh, in the papers and 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 and, and uh, news stories for all the wrong reasons. Um, and uh, I think there's a there's a, a space there uh, for especially an organization like Muslim Aid that's been around so long to kind of lead that discussion on what does the, the Muslim faith bring to the charity sector? What is our contribution that is different and above and beyond what other people are, are, are suggesting? So I think exploring those ideas a little bit more and sharing them, um, you know, uh, these more sustainable business models, getting out of this uh circus around you know who's spending more and 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 who's spending less but more to do with who's making the most impact who's creating the most change trying to control that dialogue a little bit more than we what we currently are um creating sustainable business models you know things that last so we're not hand to mouth from month to month trying to cover our costs but there's sustainable ways of generating uh income uh so we can plan our programs better you know we're very short term in the in the muslim sector a lot of our money comes in in ramadan as you know like almost more than half of our income and so it makes planning and and things like that very difficult you know people want to give zakat it needs to be spent within 12 months of them giving it and it, you know we have our very specific challenges so we need to come up with our own models and uh, that are sustainable and they work for us obviously uh, where we operate uh, but also give the the support a um, some confidence that we can uh, deliver within those models as well. So I think that that is a big area that um, I'm looking at. You know, there's a focus on creating good products, quality products and services so that I can go to Osman and the supporters and say, you know what, if you want to sponsor a child, if you want to sponsor a community, if you want to build a well, then the best place to do it is Muslim Aid. And, and you might not give us your money now, but if you had the money, you'd give it to us. You know, you know and, and creating those best-in-class products that are informed by our faith, that are in sport, informed by best practice. And this is, the, I think, the secret source of it, Osman, is then get, give it away to everybody else. You know, because ultimately, we can't do this work ourselves. You know, so we need to create these best-in-product services, but unle unlike for profit and, and trying to do it because we want to get people's money in. You create this stuff and then you give it away and you give it away and it raises the standard of the whole sector and everyone benefits, you know, because there's enough problems out there for everyone to solve. So I think developing best in class, class products, developing sustainable business models, um, uh, what does it actually take uh, to, to, to use digital properly, uh, both for our beneficiaries and our supporters? You know, but does that mean better reporting? What kind of reporting does that take? What does Osman actually want to know about, you know, the the, the child that he's sponsoring in Pakistan? Does he want to, does he want an annual report or does he want a text message? What does he want? And, and you know, using digital to be not only more efficient and just fundraise and try to get another pound off of Osman, <laughs> but actually enhance that experience. Um, you know, I, I don't think as a sector and, 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 and Muslim made largely because of funding and, and people don't want to pay for that stuff. But I think there's there's a lot to explore there um, as well. 
Um, and I think lastly, uh, is is really again uh, without I guess repeating the you know the, the the contribution of what what the Islamic faith can give to the sector, but the Islamic faith solutions, you know, things like zakat. You know, how does that actually solve a problem like, you know, uh, uh, Okaf, uh, uh, which are uh, endowments, right? Uh, uh, permanent endowments. You know, uh, contrary to popular belief, this wasn't the way charity was done in the past. You know, we had very different models. You know, there was very few instances you can find in history where we went round with buckets and, and collected money on a regular basis like we do now. You know, there are, there are other models to explore, and I think we need to explore them and we need to share them with the wider sector. Um, and we just need to work together better, uh, Osman, both within the Muslim sector, outside of the Muslim sector. A lot of the work that I've done with um, Red Cross and Oxfam when I was working there with the larger charities was really trying to explore where are the bridges that we can, you know, make between the larger charities, the smaller charities, the faith-based charities and the non-faith-based charities, you know, there still seems to be a bit of a gap there on knowledge sharing. Uh, but I think the collaboration, partnerships, um, uh, both inside the sector and outside the sector, I think um, that's a big part of the the, the way, the place that, that Muslim Aid is going to go and, and hopefully uh, others will follow as well. Absolutely. And it's so refreshing to hear your vision for Muslim aid, particularly the collaboration and partnership, mm. because as a sector, we shouldn't be really in competition with one another or duplicate each other's work. What we really should be doing is supporting each other and building on each other's strengths. So mm -hmm. although some organisations will have similar type of work that they do with their services and products, each organisation has its USP. And mm. I feel that it's about working in partnership and utilising each other's experiences and strengths and making sure that the end goal is our beneficiaries. Whatever we do internally, the end goal um, has to be supporting and uplifting and empowering our beneficiaries. Um, and sometimes, you know, having worked in the sector for um, eight years now, that's not always the case, unfortunately, and we have to be really honest. So I really like your 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 point around empower empowering partnerships and collaboration um and working together to ensure that we can really uplift the voices of of our beneficiaries um and give them a voice too um i think that's really important too it's not speaking on their behalf it's allowing them to to see what they want to do as well i just wanted to um change tack slightly Garshif. um you were appointed interim ceo in february of 2020 and that coincided with one of the most turbulent years in recent history with the uh, onset of coronavirus. And I just wanted to really understand what was that experience like to you stepping in to a CEO role at MuslimAid and having to deal with a complex organization working across the world and working in different countries where customs are quite different. How did you go about assessing that and reacting to it as, as best you could? Um, it was a tough time, Osman, <laughs> if I was to sum it up. Uh, it still is tough, but that, I mean, and um, it was it was personally very challenging. And, and the reason for that was, uh, like you said, I joined 
initially as director of transformation, um, I think it was about a month before we went into lockdown. I, I think it was the night or the night before or the day of Ramadan, uh, which is obviously, like you said, the, the busiest time of our year, right? Uh, the previous CEO had stepped down, and and so, um, and I was uh, uh, I was the interim CEO, and and so then we went into lockdown, um, and obviously there was a a load of historical and, and uh, financial and regulatory stuff that we were dealing with at the time and some small some big but you know it wasn't it wasn't a bed of roses right um and and i think everyone is aware of that but the 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 the, the real challenge was the fact that most people or not most people a lot of people that were going into lockdown already had a relationship with the people that they were going away from i didn't get time to build that relationship right so um, I just joined the organization and and then we went into lockdown. So I was talking to people, a lot of people, staff, uh, the new leadership team, the previous leadership team, all of this stuff was happening from home. Um, you know, with a person that had had not known, had not got to build uh, a, a relationship with with uh, with the individuals that um you know were were gonna end up being part of this really probably the largest restructure of the of the organization that it's had since its inception um so you know that from a personal level we made it very tough i'm a very people person uh, I, I i i like working with people you know sitting next to them shoulder by shoulder coming up with solutions and and now you're sitting behind a desk at home and and um and trying to uh, restructure an organization and 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 so on uh, while you're in a lockdown with people that you hadn't had a chance to build a relationship with and, and so on. So so from a personal level, that was that was quite tough. Um, and obviously, we didn't know at the time how long it was going to go on for, right? So, you know, we're, we're sitting here almost a year later now in another lockdown. So, you know, at the time, you know, we, you thought, okay, next week we'll go back in, the previous next week we'll go back in, and it just never happened. Um, so I think from a personal thing, that, that was very, that was very tough. Um, but what got me going, and I think maybe this uh, may, maybe this is a, a better answer to your question, was meet people and learn about some of those colleagues, you know, that really had done it all before, and, and they'd, they, you know, they'd really put all their sweat and blood into kept Muslim aid going, and you know, I just I just took it upon myself that look, I owe it to these committed individuals, these loyal individuals that have sacrificed a lot more than I had, you know, up to that point, to keep the organization going. And and that kind of gave me the the kind of uh, willpower really to stay, even to take the permanent CEO job, by the way. I mean, I, I would not have taken that that role if if I hadn't seen the commitment and loyalty of some of the some of the the, the staff. You know, unfortunately obviously we had to go through a restructure, we had to let some of them go, but um good people. Um, uh, that left, and I just see those people as sacrificing, you know, their jobs just to keep Muslim Aid going. You know, I don't. I, that that was the reality of it. Um, and those people that stayed, you know, some of the, you know, my leadership team now around me, the board, uh, the staff members. I mean, these people have sacrificed a lot more than I have, and and I just thought, you know, you owe it to them, you owe it to the beneficiaries to keep an institution like Muslim Aid going. So it is not easy. To run a global <laughs> NGO from home, uh, you know, serving what, like I said, like two, three million people.
Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, one of the reasons why I started out in the sector is because I was always passionate about um, the third sector and what it could bring to society. And having worked in the sector for a number of years, quite simply, for me, the best thing is the people. Mm. Like you say, they're loyal, they're dedicated, they're committed, they go far beyond, um, you know, you know, to get things done. And it, it just it's really a privilege, actually, to work with like minded individuals who have a passion to to forward the interests of of some of the most vulnerable citizens in the world. So mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's kind of my sentiment mm-hmm. as well. And off the back of that, Kashif, something that I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about is what do you think are the key learnings from the COVID-19 crisis? What do you think the sector, both in international development, because I think perhaps that has got its unique challenges with funding, mm-hmm. etc., especially with the closure of DFID and things mm. like that. But what do you think are the key learnings um, that have come out of COVID-19 that we really need to acknowledge um, as a sector or as the international development sector and really mm. take on board to make sure that we are here for our beneficiaries and we can serve them most effectively, not only now and in a couple of years, but well into the future? Yeah. I mean, I know it's been talked about a lot already, uh, but I think it is important the, look, the main, the, the what, what I think the the COVID situation has done, the pandemic has done. Let's take all the personal stuff to the side. I, yes, it's hard working from home. You know, I mean, I'd rather have this uh, interview with you face to face, and so on and so forth. Um, and 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 you know, the extroverts like me wanting to be in the office with his people and 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 so on. So if we, those things are tough. And 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 I don't want to downplay them. Mentally, it's been very stra- uh, stressful on on anyone that likes to be around people, um, uh, and so on. But I think the main thing that that is brought to light, um, Osman, in both the countries that we ser- that we work in and, and in the UK uh, as well, because you know at the end of the day that's where we live and work, is it has exposed a lot of gaps in the system. You know, it has exposed a lot of inequality, even more so than you know we we already knew existed as people that work in the sector. You know, we're always being told about the levels of inequality and 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 the gaps increasing, etc. But I think the, the 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 pandemic really sh- shone a light on that, um, uh, and and internationally, you ask the word internationally, I mean, the just the you know we're seeing with the recent developments, we're finally seeing a road out of this, right? Because you know people are getting vaccinated, you're getting numbers every day, you know, fifteen million, I think we're up to now, you know, a couple of hundred thousand a day getting vaccinated, and and we can finally see some way out of this. And and I think there's not there's a little appreciation that for the majority of countries that we're working with, have no idea where we are as a as a world body of humans, where we are on this cycle, <laughs> you know. So we're thinking, oh, we're coming to the end of it by June. I should be able to go on holiday, you know. Whereas, you know, like I mean, let's just take the situation of Myanmar, right? Like I mean, like where where do those Rohingyas? Where, where do those refugees think they are on this cycle of the pandemic? I mean, no one's telling them that, oh, by the way, you know, yeah, you'll be okay by June or March, or you might get your first vaccination. So it really has brought, I think, and if we haven't already, then we should now bring about an appreciation that we are, on, we, you know, we might be all living on planet Earth, but we are on, definitely on very different planets when it comes to our situation and the situation 
of those people that we serve and it would take a lot more than me sending you know i i, I you know uh, muslim aid distributed just muslim aid i think over november and december we distributed about three million quids worth of 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 uh, ppe and 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 testing equipment to some of these countries right that's just testing equipment i mean how does it affect their livelihoods we're looking at our economies how does it affect their chances of getting work people that you know had hardly any chance of work in the first place and now are, are sick with the covid vaccine so so i think what it's done usman is uh, 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 is really exposed how how inequality is affecting these people at so many different levels and we as ngos really have to i think like put a lens to ourselves and say okay you know how are we adding value uh, going forward because you know if you read some of the health, uh, some of the journals and people that speak about the future, not the conspiracy theories, I'm talking about like, you know, actual evidence-based stuff that the likelihood is that it's not going to be the first pandemic. The likelihood is not going to be the only pandemic that it may be even in our lifetime. So how do we build these systems, both internally as in INGOs in the UK and our offices abroad to deal with this going forward? You know, how do we build this into our how do we build this resilience into our programming work? How do we build this resilience in our fundraising work? You know, it's not just about moving everything digital. So that has a consequence, you know, just because we're not in the mosques. Now everyone is paying for, for digital uh, uh, and SEO on Google. Uh, the cost of the word Zagat goes up hundredfold because now more people are, are, are bidding on, you know, for those people that know how digital marketing works, you know, the cost, you know, the cost of digital marketing just goes through the roof because now everyone is moving on to it. Is that what really the pandemic is about? That, you know, instead of raising your money over there, you now raise your money over there. So I think it's about looking at that whole ecosystem now as well, because it has exposed the gap um, quite, um, quite readily. And, and we've learned as an organization that we have to find, actually, you have to find different ways of working and not just different things that you do. You don't just switch food parcels to COVID parcels uh, uh, because of the pandemic. You have to actually work out a different way of doing things now. You know What happens if there's another pandemic? How does Garshif run an organization uh, from home? How does he communicate with uh, uh, the countries abroad, et cetera? Um, uh, how do they design programs and deliver those programs when half the people themselves are infected or sick? Right? How do you do that? So, so I think this this is where that collaboration piece comes in again as well. You know, maybe there's different partners that you start looking at. You know, maybe volunteers you're looking at volunteers in a completely different way. So I think you know it's about reassessing how you actually do your work, not just the work that you're doing. If that makes sense. that's come to my mind is the age-old question in international development between emergency funding and sustainable development and mm. I just wanted to hear your perspective on that because obviously it's important that you provide the emergency relief and the the emergency support to um, vulnerable communities across the world because otherwise they wouldn't envisage any future unfortunately but where where is where does a balance sit particularly in light of COVID-19 where mm. The only way out of poverty is to get a good education, is to get a mm. quality um, job um, mm. that can meet the needs of your 
um, household. And something that I read previously is Banker to the Poor by mm. Muhammad Yunus. And mm. as you all know, he's a Nobel Peace Prize laureate in 2006 for this idea of microcredit. And mm. he established this idea for those listening to the podcast and don't know of giving small amounts of money to women in Bangladesh. And what he found was they would set up their own businesses. And by giving the money to the women, it keeps it into the community um, and it allows communities to prosper. So I just wanted to sit, I just wanted to kind of get insight where you stand on that that discussion. So so I, I'd like to to shed light on it from two different perspectives. The one first one being from from the Muslim community perspective, you will see that most of our appeals, um, not I'm not talking about Muslim aid specifically, I'm talking about the sector, that most of our appeals are generally aimed at that 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 reactiveness, unfortunately. And I think unfortunately, because um, what it takes away from is this long-term thinking. Right. And, and, and I think, uh, Usman, this is where it starts. You know, we, we I've been involved in campaigns myself outside the Muslim aid when I first started the sector um, uh, on TV channels, on, on radio, uh, where charities that, you know, th that have no right or no reason to, to fundraise for a certain country or area of work themat thematic suddenly changes its way and starts raising money for 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 a cause that they've never worked in before and and you know you ask them why, why are you raising money for that, that that's not what you were supposed to they're like oh we'll don't worry we'll find a way it's just that's where everyone else is raising money so we'll we'll just follow suit so i think first and foremost my advice would be to myself and to the other charities out there is think about what actually what actual change you want in the long term and then come backwards the emergencies are always going to be there Right, the emergency. You're not gonna. You're not gonna stop emergencies from happening. Whether they're man-made emergencies or natural uh, floods and disasters, etc., that's gonna continue. Right. Some people are going to have to be responsible for responding to those. But when all of your effort and all of your attention is diverted every time a natural disaster happens, and you're reactive, and then when you respond to that, once that once that natural disaster is no longer sexy, is no longer in the papers, no longer is being talked about, you can't raise money for it anymore. You, you, what have you actually done? You know, have you solved an actual problem? You know, have you actually solved a problem? Um, and so I think the, the first and foremost thing I'd advise is we have to be a bit more strategic and long-term thinking and a lot of my work initially before Muslim Aid was largely to convince Muslim, uh, uh, not Muslim charities, charities in general, to think about these long-term plans and don't get distracted when the next most popular thing comes along. Um, and I think if we can do more of that, think through what it actually uh, requires to create change. For, for example, what you said, you know, uh, uh, if it, if it, if the best way to support a community is to try to educate their young so that they can, uh, or, or maybe not even educate their young, maybe this, maybe you need to give the adults some vocational training. That's what actually will create change in that community. But the sexy thing to, to fundraise for is give them food parcels. Well, if you're going to give them a food parcel, you might end up giving them food parcels now for the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, uh, until you get bored of it, and then you're going to move on to the next sexy thing. Uh, and, 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 and this is both an education to our donor base, 
which costs time and money and, and is boring stuff and we don't like to do it. But educating our donor and telling and explaining to Osman, Osman, look, if you really want to change the life of this orphan, if you really want to change the life of this community or the, or the direction of this community, this is what it will take. And educating Osman on that so that Osman becomes a, a long-term supporter of change rather than a one-off giver and, and, and feels better about himself because he gave away that 20 quid. I'm sure you give away more than 20 quid. But <laughs> you know, he feels better about himself because he's given away his donation. Yeah. But to be honest with you, you have no idea what impact that donation has really created or not. You know, has it saved a life? How long is he sponsoring this orphan for? What happens to that orphan after his sponsorship ends? You know, uh, what happens when that orphan is sick? And the other thing I want to want to add to this is the the again from a faith perspective is are we doing what we're meant to be doing from a faith perspective? When you're giving your zakat, there has to be some level of so, 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 so people mention zakat all the time when it comes to Muslim giving. I think we have to make it clear: zakat in itself is the minimal level that you should be giving. It's the minimal level. It's not the only thing you should be giving as a, as, as a Muslim donor, right? So we talk about millions and hundreds of millions of pounds that we give away each year, but if that's just zakat income, then that's the very minimal that we're required as Muslims to give, right? It's almost like a tax, right? Zakat shouldn't even be called charity, right? Zakat shouldn't be called charity. It should be called a tax because that's what you have to give. Above and beyond that is what counts. Above and beyond that is what counts. And that's the bit that's likely to create change. And for you to go out there and, and, and think like you've done your bit by just handing over your Zakat to a charity is just not enough as much. You know, you have to educate yourself and, and charities have to educate donors on what it takes to create long-term change and until we don't do that long-term thinking until we don't engage our donors in that long-term thinking unfortunately we'll just get sucked into you know one disaster after another after another and not actually create I was reading a, a, a UN report uh, the other day that we've got more famine in the world than now than we had in that in the time that we started in 1985 with African famine in the first time I think it was, I think it was last year that the first time in the history of whenever they collected this data, we had three, you know, the, uh, I, I can't remember, you know, they rate the level of, of famines in the world, right? You know, the, the problems. And we had like, you know, whatever it was like three grade, you know, the top grade famines at the simultaneously running in the world at any one time, like the one in Yemen, there was one in Sudan. And, and I think the, I can't remember where the third, maybe it was Syria, I'm not sure, you know, and that's never happened before. And this is, after how many years of, of international development work? How many hundreds of millions of pounds that we're spending? The last thing I wanted to mention was really the sustainable giving, right? So we we have to, the long-term stuff can only happen with sustainable income streams. We cannot go out fundraising every time the, the donor fatigue is killing us. Look at look at just the Muslim charities in Ramadan, the amount of text messages and emails you might get. <laughs> Right? just in that 30 day period right we're a generous community we give right we're going to give anyway so you know so th that that's a given but you know from you know donors are feeling the effect of that now you've got a new generation of donors you know Osman the the, the professionals now that are a little bit more insightful looking into stuff what am I getting for my money you know our parents were a little bit more emotional when they came to their giving yeah so what would it take to create longer term giving patterns where where, where, where we can invest 
in investments, halal investments, Sharia compliant investments over a longer term. And that we can use those returns to be ready for international disasters. So we don't have to go out fundraising when something happens. And I'm just gonna leave you with one figure. So what the low figure for the Muslim community, we give between 500 million and a billion pound a year in the UK, 500 million to a billion pound a year. But all of that is given away. How much, what percentage of that is invested in, for example, in investments that give us a return? If you, if you do the math, even if 10% of that, Osman, was put towards a, a permanent endowment or investment of property of some sort, right? You could be generating 13, 10, 15 million pound a year just off the back of that, those investments. And you could use that for funding institutions, you can uh, scholarships or uh, uh, disaster relief and have a permanent fund that was available to you. But instead, because we're reactive in nature, every year we're giving away the same, uh, uh, more and more money. And every year we're coming back for even more, you know, because we don't have any, we don't have much sustainable givings. Absolutely. I think um, you raised a number of key points, um, all of which I agree with. I now wanted to touch on a particular subject that I'm really passionate and vocal about in the sector, which you touched on a little bit earlier, which is the importance of equity, diversity and inclusion. And in the last year, there's, with given the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement following the brutal murder of George Floyd on the 25th of May 2020, and also the impact of COVID-19 on specific groups. We know that people from Black, Asian and minoritized ethnic group are four times more likely to die from COVID-19. My question around equity, diversity and inclusion and an understanding of it is why does it take these events for organizations to even have a serious conversation, not do anything, but just have a serious conversation about EDI. And what mm. practical steps can organizations take to radically improve EDI? Because in my experience, it's always left at the bottom of an agenda or mm. a quote to quote, nice to have. And we really need to make the point that funders now, so I work as a fundraiser myself, funders, some of the largest funders in the country are asking me as a fundraiser, what percentage of your trustees what percentage of your ELT executive leadership team have lived experience of the issues that you're trying to solve? And it makes sense. If you mm. do, if you're, if the people sitting around the table taking a lead on strategic decisions that will impact the charity in five to 10 years, do not have an understanding of the beneficiary group they're supporting. It becomes very difficult to make the argument that you're there to serve the beneficiaries because you may not understand the nuance um, differences in culture or other differences that you need to take into account. So I suppose it's a long-winded long way of asking, why <laughs> do you take these events to have even a serious conversation, let alone do anything? And what can organisations do to really ramp up the efforts? It's a good question. And, and why it takes these kind of events to do it, I don't know. Um, but what I can say is, my experience um, in, in diversity inclusion. When I when I first came into the sector, uh, I joined 
some initially some faith-based organizations and then I moved to Oxfam and I moved to Red Cross which were the I guess the largest ones I moved to right before I came to Muslim Aid um, and yeah I started to contribute towards the diversity and inclusion discussion because I felt compelled right the, the, that the discussion was and this was before it became sexy again right so this is before like the, some of these obviously well before Black Lives Matter and stuff like that and um, it it was it was perplexing to me that you know we had large organisations um, that were largely working with um, communities that that existed in this country in the UK right in in the whole um, had no connection with those communities you know there there was no representation with them in the staff um, in 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 some of these places. I was only the only Asian or even uh, minority person in, in leadership teams, um, and 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 that was a fact. Um, and so you automatically started seeing yourself as in, in almost an ambassadorial role to to try to um, uh, uh, increase the understanding of your community or the community that you were in with you know with those that were around the table. Um, most of the time you were discussing um, uh, problems and programs and initiatives and interventions uh, amongst people and cultures and countries that most of the people around the table were not from and, and had uh, you know only a superficial idea based on trips there or working there for a couple of years uh, that they were bringing into the scene. And, and that disturbed me and that disturbed me a lot. And that's what prompted me to start, okay, you know what, where are these discussions happening? I was in a privileged position that I was part of leadership team, so I could raise those kind of discussions up. But the truth is, there's not enough of us in those positions to be able to raise awareness of, of those things, right? So um, I think now that these movements have raised some of these issues, I think there's a couple of items that I think we can do from a practical basis, is small things matter a lot. You know, one of the frust most frustrating things about working in the charity sector is that the pace of change is so slow, right? Um, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that, yeah, some of it has to do with competency and, and, and resource and obviously people and our donors don't want to pay for things that are not it's only now they want to pay for diversity and stuff, but usually that's not one of the reasons they'll give you money for, right? To hire a diversity and inclusion officer, for example, you know, try fundraising for that in the Muslim sector, right? It's not going to happen. Um, but but we're seeing the importance of this now in program design, in, 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 in like you said, learning about cultures. And I think creating those, well, well first of all, uh, let me just finish that point about small things, right? So in your recruitment, in your advertising, you know, this is what I couldn't get around this, you know, when I, especially in, in the larger charities, is when you're putting a job advert out there, looking at the wording of that advert, looking at the where you're the platforms that you're advertising on. How can you be on the largest charities slap bang in the middle of East London and not be able to attract talent from that place? Like either you're telling me there's no other. Asian in East London that could fill that job or is willing to apply 
or there's a, there, there, there might be a competency problem, but then that raises another question on how, what can you do as a sector, as, as a sector, charity sector as a whole, in empowering and developing talent? Are, are you going to create fairs in those schools, in those universities that have majority minority uh, uh, pupils, telling them that there's a career in charity, this is what you can do? Um, and I think these small things, I mean, I mean, just to do blind recruitment processes, right, where you just take away the name from the shortlisting process, right? I mean, what does it cost to do that? I mean, for goodness sake, use some tipex. If you can't, if your system, you know, I remember getting into this argument with the IT guy about, oh yeah, you know what, it's a feature, we'll have to pay for it, develop it, do, you know, take it away. I'm like, for goodness sake, just someone else do it, tell them to tipex it out, scribble over the name before they give me the CV. Do something. We don't have to do the whole shebang, do the small things and it works. And 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 sorry, lastly, I was going to say is welcoming opinions on from 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 people that are not normally in the leadership team. Right. Because even when we do enter some of these organizations as minority communities, we're not normally in leadership positions. So how do you tap into that? that those people that are, I guess, further down the the the, the, the hierarchy sometimes and creating a space for them to speak up. Um, when I first started my career, I'm sure the same with you when, you, when you got your first job, you know, how difficult is it to bring something up to your manager, right? You know, like, you know, you're, you're not normally going to do that when you're first starting up in, in, in a field. Only when you build up your confidence and once you in, 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 have a certain amount of experience behind you, et cetera, et cetera, you start feeling confident. So we need to give confidence and empower those people that might not be at the leadership level to say, hey, it's okay, you can come and speak to us as well. Yeah, absolutely, Kashif. And I think your point around small things matter um, is really important. Um, anything that an organization can do um, to improve the way employees feel from whatever background, for whatever life experiences, it's going to be so important because it's only then you get diversity of thought. And if we are going to be solving some of the biggest challenges our world has ever faced, like climate change, like poverty, we're going to need a diverse range of thoughts. Um, and the solutions that the sector um, had 20 or 30 years ago, some of them are no longer viable. And that diversity of thought, that lived experience, is going to be so important in the next 10, 20 years. And if organizations don't genuinely improve their EDI, and I think that I use that term quite a lot when I talk about <laughs> EDI, it's about genuinely and taking a proactive effort to do so, I think those are the organizations that will be left behind. Because at the end of the day, the charity sector is quite small. And mm. people know, and the word gets round of what organizations are inclusive and diverse and which aren't. And you are going to be losing out on a lot of talent organizations across our sector that do not step up to the challenge. And I, I have to commend Charity So White on this because I think they've come in and shone a light and held up a mirror on our sector. And they've told mm. us the truth that our sector, although we profess these ideals of collaboration and empathy and all of these kind of values that we try to profess, we have to genuinely ask ourselves, are we really living up to those values? Um, and I think there's a lot of question marks under that. Um, but it's such a, we could do a whole other podcast on that. Yeah. But 
I no, just... we, and, we, and maybe we should. I mean, it's an important topic. And like you said, it's not just the solutions that are changing the swan mm. in, the ne- in, our, in the sector. The whole ecosystem of the sector is changing. You know, the knowledge doesn't only exist here anymore. It exists all around the world, right? You know, the money doesn't even exist only in the West anymore. It exists all around the world. So we're talking about the whole, you know, the whole ecosystem around us is changing. So if you want to carry on thinking that you can come up with a solution yourself without talking to people that are not from the same background as yourself and the same education system as yourself, um, then uh, then you're not going to, I don't think you're going to last very long now. You know, we're trying to do it with Musumade. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to create more forums for our country offices to, 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 uh, to contribute to. Um, I talk to them a lot more myself now. Um, they're not just part of the programs team. They 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 sit in our subcommittees for the the programs. They they have uh, uh, now uh, mo- monthly or quarterly sessions with the leadership team in the HQ. And also, they you know one of our strategic priorities this year is that that basically we become a lot more decentralized in our decision-making process. So, you know, you have to create those platforms as well. It takes a bit of work, you know, it's not easy, but bring them into the decision-making process, make them feel like they have a say in, in which way the directions uh, of, the, of the organization is going and, and that kind of stuff. Anyway, like you said, that's a whole, it's another podcast. It is, it certainly is, and perhaps we can do that later on in the year. Um, I also want to ask you about leadership very briefly. You've held numerous leadership positions across your career and I just wanted to get your insight of what makes some useful advice or tips of what makes a successful leader Um, because Mm -hmm. I think you can be a leader without being a manager and it's something that I've reflected on quite a lot in my career so I just wondered um, what your thoughts are around that. Ultimately like the type of leader you are does rest on the values and, 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 and the principles that you hold to yourself you know and um, I think, I think you, I think you, those values and principles, first of all, need to be. You need to you need to stick with them. You know, like values should be. Uh, you need to be sincere to yourself. Otherwise, leadership is is a hard enough position as it is, right? If you try to do it not being yourself, it becomes even harder. You can only act for so long. You can only be someone else for so long. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm a very big believer of what they call authentic leadership and trying to be be yourself um, and, and a values-based leadership only because, like I said, it, it's a very, very difficult thing. And I think a leader in the, in the charity sector is the most difficult thing on the planet. I think emotionally, mentally, uh, physically, there, there's nothing more demanding than being a CEO or, 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 or a manager uh, uh, or a worker even. In, in, in the charity sector versus the commercial sector. I worked in the commercial sector for 14 years, like I said, one of the largest uh, multinationals at the time. You know, I think it was the largest company in Europe at one point. So I can, I can make a comparison. Yeah, there's pressures, there's always pressures, right? But the difference is the pressure here is you don't do your job uh, or don't raise enough money or don't get that program right. And someone might actually suffer, like someone might actually die. Someone might actually not get fed. Someone might not uh, 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 get an education. Um, so you need to stay grounded. You need to stay value-based. You need to stick to those values. And you need to stick up for those values because when you start losing those values, the, the work is going to overrun you and it, and it will crush you. There's no doubt about that, right? It will, it, will, it will crush you. As most leaders will tell you in the charity sector, 
once you're a leadership position in a charity sector, you're not you're, you're, you get you get more and more away from charity work, right? You know, you're not handing out food parcels yourself apart unless you're doing it for photos, right? Or videos, you know, you're not, you're not actually physically helping people, you know, on the thing, you, you know, you're doing it from a very long distance away, you're signing checks, or you're in recruiting someone or enabling someone else to go out and help someone else who helps someone else to do the work that you want them to do. So, so that distance becomes wider for a leader as they go up the charity sector. And so you need something to Usman to, to keep you connected. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think having good role models has been a big part of my life. You know, whether it's my parents um, and then when I when I uh, met other uh, were religious role models, charity role models, you need to uh, keep yourself surrounded by good role models, people that you look up to. Maybe you're not personally associated with them, but you know they are good people. They 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 are they are what you want to be, you know. And and you if you're lucky enough, like I was, I've had some very good role models in my life. You know, and uh, both uh, in my family uh, uh, and then outside my family when I started work. Uh, being a leader is a very lonely place, right? Being a leader is a very lonely place. So you need someone there, you know. Um, so you see good, you know, you see bad, you know, coaches or mentors. You're like, oh, man, you know what? If I ever become a CEO, I'm never going to do that. They, you know, that helps as well. You know, that helps as well. Uh, so um, I think that... Uh, a good mentor, good, good, good role models has helped me a lot. Um, ha continuous learning, you know. I've just enrolled in a, a, a leadership coaching course myself to be a coach, uh, but uh, I went back to do a master's degree in, in NGO management. What 15, 20 years of leaving university, you know. You have to keep learning. You know, you, you, you know, the, the world is such now that things are moving very fast like you said solutions to problems uh unless you're not learning continuously in one way shape form or another uh you will be left behind and you won't be able to inspire your teams you won't be able to guide your teams you won't be able to help other people uh, because you know you haven't kept up with you know the, the flow of information is just so fast now yeah absolutely Kashif. and i think your your final point about humility is really important and and being humble um one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given um, from a director of fundraising I worked with in my first ever role in the charity sector was the ability to listen. Mm. I think that really um, put it in context for me. Um, and good ideas are good ideas from wherever they come from. And I think that's something that I've tried to do in my career is to listen and get people's thoughts and ideas um, from whatever a level of the organization um, they're at. So I think that's really important for me personally. And that's what I try to embed in, in kind of my practice. Um, and, and finally to end Kashif, um, it's been awesome talking to you. And I think um, perhaps we, we need a part two of this um, later on in the year, there's so much to talk about. But just to end with very briefly, what we try to do is ask two quick questions just to really sum up the conversation. So the first is, what are your main frustrations about the sector? Mm. And secondly, what do you love about the sector? I don't know if, look, I, I don't know if they're, they're, they're frustrations, but I think I mentioned it before. I, I, I guess maybe it's just me and, and, and just my natural disposition. But 
I think the, the, the pace of the sector frustrates me sometimes. Um, the, uh, uh, and I was told this when I first came into the sector um, that, look, you're going to notice this between where you've come from and where you're coming and what coming into. Uh, the pace of change for me is not fast enough that we, we need to move faster as a sector, you know. Um, there's, you know, there's various methodologies out there, but, you know, this quick fail and uh, kind of scenarios, piloting something, trying something, let it fail, but fail quickly. What do I love about the sector? The, the stuff that's kept me in it. I mean, as frustrating as it gets, as draining as it gets, as, as mentally exhausting as the whole thing is, and, and, and sometimes you feel like, you know, what, why am I doing you know, it's the people. I mean, you mentioned it before, I think, Osman, uh, already, you know. I mean, you come across the most selfless, you know, people that you've met in your life. People that have sacrificed so much, you know. And they're not because they're CEO, you know. They're not be they don't have a, a pay packet like I do. They don't have the, 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 the titles that, that, that I've held, but you know, normally someone in the organization, multiple people in, in organizations, even that in the Muslim aid, God bless them, you know, that are just selfless. I mean, absolutely selfless. You know, I mean, all of those people uh, day in and day out. Yeah, well, gosh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, I really enjoyed it. We've covered so many topics in just an hour and a bit. And just really want to thank you for your time, um, particularly late on a Friday evening um so thank you so much and um i think we'll have you on again to discuss some more topics but for for the meantime thank you for joining us thank you very much Osman. it's been a pleasure it was a pleasure speaking to Garshif on such a wide range of topics in particular his vision for muslim aid and how the wider sector needs to continue to work together in the years ahead, particularly in light of the COVID-19 crisis. We also touched on the importance of having a truly diverse and inclusive workforce and the leadership qualities that have stood Garshif in good stead. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to this podcast and we always welcome your feedback on charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Charity People, our platinum sponsor, Magda Aksumit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images, and Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>